On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Courtney, and Courtney was married to an intimidating abuser. It's a story of vulnerability, respect, coercive control, and escalation points. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Courtney. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing well. And if you want to be a guest like Courtney is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There, you can read all of our instructions, and you can either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And please do read all of the instructions and send it in the format that we ask for. And today we are going to hear Courtney's story and a big trigger warning for this episode. There is discussion of sexual coercion in this episode, as well as uh, physical violence, intimidation as well. So if this episode isn't for you, please turn it off right now. And I just want to thank Courtney for being here, telling a story like this with all these different escalation points that just continue uh, throughout this relationship, even into the divorce and custody afterward that just kind of keeps on going and, and is still going in, in a lot of ways. It's not an easy story to tell. So just a big, big thank you to Courtney for being here. And now I'm going to get out of my way in your way. Courtney, the floor is now yours. Thank you. Um, I just have to say I'm a huge fan. I've been following the podcast for quite a while and I'm honored. It's a privilege for me to be here today. Um, we'll start in my childhood. You know, I look back, there was four of us, small family. My mom and dad were married for 26 years at the time when my dad passed away. Um, but no, definitely no history of domestic violence in the home at all. Um, my father was very gentle, very intelligent. My parents were loving to one another. There was really no yelling kind, sweet, loving, caring parents. They were very strict. My dad was in the Air Force. So there was um, a sense of not a ton of rigidity, but enough, right? So there was structure and there were rules and there were definitely a lot of, there was some mutual understanding and mutual respect that if my sister and I did what we were asked and we were, we were treated with respect and vice versa, but it wasn't done in a uh, mean or suffocating way, if you will. Looking back on my early childhood, I have very fond memories. Um, I had a very close-knit group of girlfriends. And I think for me, friendship was always very important. Relationships were always very important. I saw my parents super loyal to one another, married for many years throughout up and downs. And um, I think for that, that just drilled in me a sense of loyalty, right? Loyalty was very important. So. I was definitely a pretty confident adolescent, if you will. Academics were super important to my family. My father was very well educated and had been trying to, he was working on his second master's when he passed away. So he was always one to continue, you know, learning. 
that was important to me. And my lifelong dream was to be an attorney. So I was always very outspoken. I was known as the outspoken one in the group and between my sister and I. So I think for me, when I look back, when my dad passed away, I think it softened me a bit um, and definitely brought me down a peg or two, if you will. So I think I was primed for, I was vulnerable in a sense. I was primed for a relationship that probably wasn't the healthiest and just wanting to make it work because I wanted that sense of stability and I wanted to fill perhaps a void in me with losing my dad. So the year after my dad passed away, obviously it was definitely challenging. My sister was still in high school at the time. She was four and a half years younger than me. And I had moved back from college and was commuting to college to stay with my mom and sister at the time. So I really turned into my support system, my family, my friends that were around for me at that point. And they definitely helped me through that time. So the following summer is when I met my ex-husband and um, I was introduced to him through a friend. So that right there, looking back now, it gives you almost a false sense of security because you feel as though if I'm meeting this person through someone that I know and love and trust, then this person will be someone that I can know and love and trust, especially when you're young and and far more naive. So we met through friends at a 4th of July party and the relationship just through inertia continued from there. Um, I would say at that point in time, if I can put myself as the 20-year-old meeting the 24-year-old, we were both young and kind of just starting out and really fell in love and wanted to, you know, build a life together. He was, you know, it sounds so typical, tall, dark, handsome, funny. There was a sense in him, there was a feeling that I got in talking to him that he was excited to really have a partnership with me and do that life with me. And that to me as a 20 year old is what I thought, you know, I was, I looked at my mom and dad who had built a life together from really nothing and made it through 25 years and thought, all right, this is how it, how it happens. You meet, you fall in love and then You buy your first house, it's a fixer upper and you have two kids and a white picket fence and then you grow old together. There was always this edge and aggression surrounding him, which did attract me to him in the beginning. I have to say my dad, like I said, was quiet and reserved. He was not that strong. He was strong and he was always, my dad was stable. And he was the anchor of the family. He worked. My mom stayed at home. He provided for us. And he was always, always there. Anything you needed, he was there. But he wasn't that aggressive, you know, I'm going to protect you and I'm going to change the the flat tire on the side of the road type of dad. My ex-husband portrayed that to me when I met him. He was aggressive and he was I saw him as a protector and I didn't have a brother and my dad had passed. So I almost, he almost took on that role for me in my mind of if I'm with him, he'll protect me and I'll have this strong man by my side who will help me navigate through life. So like I said, we, we met through friends at the party we dated. He was working 
a little bit further away. So we didn't spend a tremendous amount of time together just because of time constraints, if you will, in our life. But as the relationship progressed and we started to fall more and more in love and the feelings intensified, we started to talk about our future. I'd say probably after a year, the family unit that we saw that we wanted to have in our future and all of those things pretty much aligned. So that also helped keep the relationship going despite differences that we came across along the way, you know, and when you're young, I think you think, oh, well, he's just immature. He hasn't grown up yet. Or I'm just immature. I haven't grown up yet. So eventually you two do move into a fixer upper home together. And within this time as well, you do meet his family. So tell us about them. So his family was loud and fun and big and boisterous. And also it was riddled with tragedies throughout, which were sad, but also I could relate to him given the fact that my dad passed so suddenly. So there was also that common kind of, I guess, trauma bond, if you will. Um, His family also, unfortunately, came from some history of domestic violence. It was pretty normalized in the family. Now, looking back, of course, you know, I see that my ex-husband had not a great role model in his father. And you know, sometimes people will try to place blame or shift blame for his environment that he grew up in. But I always try to like encourage people to take a step back and think about it because there are plenty of people in this world who have grown up in horrible situations who turn out to be wonderful people. So I think that in itself is kind of a victim blaming mentality. And I really try to steer away from from that. Another attractive trait was he had kind of taken on the the caretaker and primary you know breadwinner role. He was trying to help his mother out. A lot of what he did in terms of work and why he worked so hard was because he was really trying to help his mom rebuild her life and get back on her feet after his dad had gone to prison. So he was helping his mom financially, and he also really helped her around the house. He did a lot of the you know manly chores, if you will mowing the lawn, taking out the garbage, painting, fixing things, helping her with her car, anything like that, that a typical husband would, would take on, he was doing. So I also saw that and thought if he treated his mother that way, then he would definitely make a great husband and treat hopefully me, his wife that way. So as we discussed in our pre-call, your relationship is one of escalation points from this very demanding Mr. Right type abuser. But the first four years of your relationship was relatively or seemingly benign. So now with the benefit of hindsight, take us through this time in your relationship and what were kind of the tactics that were going on? So I think... So much of missing the red flags, if you will, and the problems early on were was just because of our age. We were just starting out. We had just taken on the undertaking of redoing this house that was essentially our dream house. I had actually purchased a business at the time, which for someone who was 20 years old was quite the challenge, but one that I took on really 
eagerly, if you will. So he was helping me with that. He was just launching his career. So there was a lot of excitement surrounding us. And I think I just leaned into that excitement. In hindsight, a lot of the decisions that we made in terms of building our future were made almost by him coercing me into believing that we were doing it together, but he was really making the decisions. And I wasn't able to see that then, but I see that now. And some of the behaviors that he was doing were stripping away at my autonomy. And prior to that, I saw myself as a very independent person. And even buying a business at 20 is a pretty independent and strong move you know, to make everyone, when I told everyone that I was going to do that, you know, said I was crazy and that it would never last. And it was too much for someone my age to do, but I ended up owning the business for 11 years. So I had to prove them all wrong, which is part of my personality. So, you know, he was starting to do things like control the finances, monitoring my phone, you know, our, our phone lines were combined at that point, even before we were married, stopping by my business all the time under the guise of, you know, wanting to help. But now looking back, I I understand that he was almost keeping tabs on me, right? Um, Narrowing the, the scope of our social circle and kind of eroding away at my friends and really pushing relationships and spending time with and traveling with people that were more aligned with his his agenda. I think now when I look back, if anyone ever disagreed with him, he would almost start small narrative, this voice in my ear of why they were bad or why you know I should not be friends with them anymore. And some of these people were friends of mine for 10 plus years. So I can see that now. So slowly, almost just like moving my focus and my life and the trajectory of it into the trajectory that he wanted, something that fit his life on his terms in settling down and in falling into a serious relationship and getting engaged and getting married and starting a family and sharing a house with someone. You have to make concessions and you have to come to a middle ground and give up some things in your life, right? No relationship is ever going to be one-sided. So that's why it was so hard for me to recognize his coercive behaviors and actually just a normal, healthy relationship. I saw these behaviors as almost just normal and what happens to people when they grow up and settle down. So after the first four years, you end up having a child. And this is, I guess, the first escalation point where you notice that this has escalated. So walk us through what happened here. So I got pregnant with my first, with our first child pretty unexpectedly and quickly. And we had talked about wanting children, but I don't think I was quite ready to have them that young. I felt a little unprepared, but I was very excited nonetheless. And when my daughter was born, 
motherhood came very easily to me. And I was a little bit nervous about that. I think mostly just because of my age, but it became so easily to me. And she was so easy for me to bond with and love and forge that really special relationship that I have with both of my children. And it was in that moment. And I often say this to people when I talk about my relationship, I vividly remember her being born and it was almost this shift in the energy in the room with him. And I don't know how else to explain it, but I felt the shift and I don't think we ever recovered from that moment. I think he had a very difficult time accepting that the focus wasn't all on him. And a lot of obviously the focus of a new mother and and even you know my mother and his mother and, and our both of our families fell on the child. She was the first grandchild on both sides. So there was a tremendous amount of, you know, love and affection that that fell on her because of that. So it was an interesting transition in our relationship. And, you know, prior to that, I felt as though, you know, we were in this together and we were building a life and he had helped me build my business and we redid this house and we got the dog that we wanted. And here we were doing life together. And as soon as my daughter was born, it's almost like we became adversaries. For example, he wanted me to to breastfeed and I wanted to breastfeed the children. So he would want me to breastfeed and didn't want the children to to drink formula or take a bottle. And then he would almost use it against me and get mad and upset with me that my daughter only wanted me to hold her. And it, it started like slowly like that, where he was just putting me in these constant no-win situations where something he wanted was in something that angered him. I would say for me, another important thing to discuss and, and the listeners can probably relate to is that after you have a, a child, it's a it's a trying time for any woman, right? You're emotional and you're sleep deprived. And if you're in a healthy relationship, I really truly do think that that's where a lot of these shifts happen. So you start to question, is this normal or is this not? And then you talk to you know, friends, moms, sisters, dads, grandpas, grandmas, whomever, aunts, uncles. And there starts this almost external gaslighting that comes out of these conversations. I remember talking with my mom and my mother-in-law at the time, and I would say things like, I'm so exhausted and the baby will be crying and he'll just yell at me to get up and get the baby and he won't get up and get the baby and I don't understand why. And they would dismiss his maltreatment of me and say, well, you know, your dad never got up with you in the middle of the night or my husband never got up with me in the middle of the night and he's tired, he has to go to work. Or these little, you know, forms of gaslighting that they would put in your head that then, you know, kind of almost snuffed out that flame of something's not right here. Because I had this always itch inside. I don't think this feels right. I don't think this is right. Something's off. And then everyone else would just make excuses and almost excuse his poor behavior based on their own experiences. And the stress of having a child 
was already pretty apparent. There was a lot of bickering. There was a lot of resentment building, I can remember. And there was a lot of him placing the blame on me when I was upset. So there was never any ownership in his behavior. He frequently would smoke weed, so which I never ever enjoyed and, and didn't support and didn't want around. And that was, I think, a big behavior and a sticking point for me that I had numerous conversations with him about. And he promised that he wouldn't do it when we had kids. And it goes back to, okay, when he grows up and he becomes a dad, he'll change. So shortly after my daughter was born, it was apparent that he wasn't going to change. So he would frequently come home from work, get high, and my mom would be watching our daughter. And that would kind of start the conversation because I would ask him, when are you going to get our daughter? And then that would be turned around on, you're nagging me. You're always bothering me. And then if I saw certain charges on certain credit cards that I knew were related to him getting high, it would be you're controlling me. And then he would lie. So it was this vicious circle. And I think that's where a lot of this word salad and circle talk and all of those manipulative behaviors come into play, where instead of just taking ownership and saying, you're right. I broke a promise. I know you don't want it around our child and I'm doing it anyway. It's, well, I'm stressed. You're nagging me. Life is hard. I don't care that I lied mentality, which a lot of, I think these abusers take on doing what, you know, always his agenda, doing what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it, but publicly facing and to our families or on holidays or at events, you know, always taking on that role of the the doting dad and the loving husband. So that is also another confusing behavior that now looking back, I realize is so manipulative because it's such a different reality that I was living. I was living this reality, which is the life that I wanted of the doting dad and the loving father, opening the door, carrying the baby, helping me, checking on me, you know, bringing me a plate of food, playing with our daughter on the ground in front of people. And then when no one was around, not helping, yelling at me if I was upset and just a lot of stonewalling too. If there was an argument or if I expressed to him anything that I was upset about or that was bothering me, it would be the silent treatment and the stonewalling would follow. So eventually you do have a second child and on the day that your son is born, you told me that a big energy shift happened on that day and there was just this big incident where your mom and your sister bring your daughter to the hospital and your ex didn't want your daughter there and your ex just starts yelling at them. So walk us through uh, the aftermath of this event. It became it became a point of contention because it obviously upset my mom and sister because he was so disrespectful and so out of line. And he wouldn't take any ownership of it. He just the same victim blaming and and manipulation that he was had been doing to me. He started to do to them and he just he always based his manipulation on disrespect. So he turned it around and said, 
your mom and sister disrespected me by bringing our daughter to the hospital. I didn't want her there yet. I told them not to bring her and to wait. So there was always this undercurrent of respect, which when someone poises it in that way, it's meant to essentially, right, like show their power dominance. So it started to almost bring me down a peg every time he would say it, right? He was essentially telling me what I say is more important. And if you go against what I say, it's disrespect. So that started to permeate the walls of our home, if you will, and bleed into my friends, my family, and the kids. Now I see, you know, again, it goes back to he wanted the attention and the power and the authority to be solely focused on him, him to be the center, the center point of the family, right? So um, I think that's where I saw that behavior really exponentially start to increase when my when our son was born. And how did your family uh, take this and feel about this at the time? What were they saying to you? They weren't saying much, I think, because we had two children. My daughter was two and a half and my son was a newborn. So I think they saw the stress and strain we were under just from that. So they didn't want to exacerbate it. They were a little bit more receptive when I would go to them with some grievances. And I think they had they were starting to see it, which I'm sure was heartbreaking and upsetting to them, but they didn't share it with me at that time. I don't think they, they wanted to because they didn't want to hurt me. You know how, when, when anyone, when you see anyone that you love and care about in a bad or unhealthy situation, I think it's two prong, right? You don't want to hurt them and say it. And we all as humans hold out hope that it'll get better. Right. So I think it's, it's a little bit of both. So at this point in your relationship, more and more abuse tactics start to show as well as his psychology really starts to show more. So you're able to see a little bit more than what you were seeing before as far as who he is and what's being done. So are you starting to think to yourself about what you're willing to deal with and what you're not willing to deal with? Uh, what are your deal breakers at this time? I think for me, the line in the sand was always physical violence for whatever reason. Physical violence and cheating for me were always deal breakers, if you will. But now, again, looking back with the knowledge I have, there were very much there was very much evidence of physical violence in our relationship. He would often break things, smash things, punch holes in the walls. Um, if he was agitated and I was standing near the sink, let's say, doing dishes, he would have no problem walking up to the sink, hip checking me to the side and washing his hands to get me out of the way. So there was a lot of that posturing in a physical sense. And then there was a lot of also posturing and dominance 
in a sexual sense. And it, and he always somehow linked it back to respect. I'm your husband. You should want to have sex with me. You should have sex with me. Almost as I, as if I owed it to him and doing so was out of respect. So there was one time when he came into the bedroom, he would turn on the lights and he would start yelling and he would just keep yelling and yelling until I would give in to whatever he was yelling about. And he yelled so loud that he woke up our daughter daughter, and he wouldn't let me out of the room to nurse her back to sleep until I gave in to, to having sex with him. And that was so, I think, damaging because it was such a power move, if you will. You know, he was going to show me that he was going to, you know, make me succumb to to what he wanted to do at the expense of, of our children. You know, my daughter was crying out for me and, and he didn't seem to care. His needs trumped her, even hers. So that was difficult for me. And those instances started to escalate. They weren't frequent if this makes sense and and people can probably relate, it wasn't that they were frequent. They weren't happening more. I think just his demands, the tone and the timing of when he would do that was intensifying. He was eroding away at that protector role that I always wanted my husband to have. And he was turning into more of a scary role. And when someone you're married to starts to make that transition, it slowly changes how you view them, how you interact with them, how you handle them, and how you handle yourself. Because there's always that undercurrent of fear when they're around. It was almost like, static electricity that I couldn't put my finger on. But when he was around, things were different. And it was because I was scared of him. And you can't pinpoint it. I can't pinpoint it to one instance. I think it's a series of instances. It was like a domino effect. And how are you feeling about yourself? I think I was already feeling pretty low after the children. I think Many women could probably relate to that. You know, you, you're emotional. Um, you take a beating physically. It's a lot. You're tired. You're exhausted. And if you're nursing, it's even more taxing, right? So it was a lot all at once. And I think it just compounded the vulnerability again. Like when I was, when I met him, I was vulnerable. I had had something tragic happen. I was vulnerable at this point because as women, after we have children, we're vulnerable. So he capitalized on the the vulnerable times and it definitely just exacerbated everything. 
So eventually a very scary event happens and you'd been telling your ex for a while that he needed to find the family dog a new home because the dog had really become very aggressive around your kids and he doesn't do anything about this and your daughter ends up in the hospital. So walk us through this. So we had to take her to the emergency room and she needed pretty extensive plastic surgery. And I can remember being in the hospital room with her and she had yellow shorts on and a purple tank top with hearts on it. I'll never forget what she was wearing. And he turned to me in that moment in front of a, a room full of doctors and nurses and said, the dog bit our daughter because you have bad energy and you don't like the dog. And I remember it was like a punch to the stomach. And I was so taken aback that he could turn such a horrible, tragic event and blame it on me. And I felt anger in that in that moment because so much of his stance was always respect, respect, respect. And I felt as though, and it was the ultimate disrespect. And it was ironic, of course, but this is how these abusers operate. The irony of it was he was the one with the bad energy, but he blamed it on me. And my sister, who was at the in the house at the time, who was devastated, he started the narrative of She's not allowed around the kids. She didn't handle the situation correctly. Dog bit our daughter because she wasn't watching. She's inept. She's incapable. And that really started a rift, a quite significant rift in the in our family. Again, capitalizing on a vulnerability, right? When you have something like this happen and it's traumatizing and so significant, And my sister would never want something bad to happen. She was devastated. She she still talks about it to this day, and it's 10 years ago. When you try to twist that into something that's malicious, it's even more devastating. So that was really difficult. And my sister started to get upset with me that I wasn't taking a stronger stance to him in regards to sticking up for her. And I wasn't able to really explain or express to her why I couldn't. And I don't think at that time I would have been able to. Now I I have been, and now she clearly understands why I couldn't defend her, stick up to him. It would have caused more problems for me, right? Shortly thereafter that, I discovered that I had thyroid cancer. And although it's a very treatable cancer and the surgery was easy and successful. And, and I don't want to take away from anyone's struggle with something that's much more difficult. But at the time, compounding all the events that had gone on, it was, it was a difficult time. And just to hear a diagnosis of that when you're a 30-year-old with two children, it's jarring and scary. So I remember going in to get surgery and it was two days before Christmas. And I remember sitting there waiting and I kept calling out to my ex-husband because I wanted him to FaceTime the kids. 
to be able to, you know, just talk to them before I went in for surgery. And he was ignoring my call, my, you know, saying his name over and over. And he finally turned around and I remember the look in his eyes and he goes, what do you want? And I said, well, I want to talk to the kids. And he responded, well, I'm planning a fishing trip, so you're going to have to wait. And I was just dumbfounded. And I remember in the operating room, the nurse was like, okay, sweetie, when you wake up, what do you want for Christmas? And I will never forget, she had like the gas mask close enough to my face that I could see it. And I said to her, I want a divorce. And I said it with such conviction. And I knew right then and there that it was over. And she laughed and kind of pulled the gas mask away. And I responded, I'm not kidding. So the doctors discharged me. And I remember them saying to my ex-husband, do not take this patch off of her. It's really important she stops throwing up. If she throws up, you're going to have to, you know, take her back to the hospital. So I remember driving home and the drive was over an hour because I went to a specialty hospital and he was driving so erratically. And I kept saying to him, please stop. And he wouldn't. It was almost like every time I asked him, he, he drove more aggressively and more erratically. And all I kept thinking was just get me home and get me out of this car. And my mom was there with the kids and she told me this after the fact, but she said she tucked the kids in and told my ex-husband she was going to leave. And she stood in the hallway and watched him because he was in the bedroom with me. And she said I was sleeping, but she saw him take the patch off. He thought she had left, but he was still doing it in a way that he knew he shouldn't be doing it. And she's like, I got chills and I just walked out. So I was violently ill all night. Unbeknownst to me, he had taken the patch off because I was obviously not very coherent. And he demanded that I make Christmas Eve dinner for his family two days, two days later. And I remember him sitting on the couch while I served everybody. And I knew that I wanted a divorce, but I just didn't even know where to start. So time went on and the house was not a happy house by any stretch of the imagination. I wasn't getting pregnant. He wanted me to get pregnant. And I started to plan my exit but he had no idea. So I sold my business. I had tried to sell it for a few months and it was distressing to me because I knew that I needed to sell that before I started the divorce. So I felt pressure um, to get that done. And when the money was wired over for the sale, he drained the bank account. So I was devastated because that was my nest egg, if you will, to get the lawyer. At that time, I had spoken to two lawyers and I had settled on one that I was going to use. And he he understood that I needed to wait to get them, my finances in order. And I had told my mom and sister that I was you know, going to go through with this. And they 
were not wholeheartedly supportive. I think mostly because they knew it was going to be a difficult road and I had two small children, but my mind was made up and, and I hadn't made it pretty clear at that time. It didn't make it any easier, but I think once I stopped vacillating on, do I stay or do I go? Is this abuse? And is it not? And I made up my mind. There was nothing you could have done at that point in time that would have changed my mind. So how did you eventually get the money for the lawyer? I had re-enrolled in college to try to finish a few credits that I needed that were just kind of lingering around to get my bachelor's degree finished. But it was important to me to get that done because I knew in selling my business and getting divorced, I would need the degree to fall back on. I was going to need to support myself and the kids. So I was in class one night and I get a phone call from my mom, frantic. And she says, the kids and your ex are, were in the car and it was a monsoon. It was a bad storm. He drove into a puddle that was deeper than he thought and the car flooded out. So he had to get towed and I have the kids and he totaled the car. So of course I was livid that he took the kids out in that weather and, and put them in that situation. And I remember us arguing for hours about the car. And somehow, and maybe one day I'll remember, but I don't have any recollection as to how I got him to agree that he would give me half the insurance money for the car, but I did. And that's the money that I used to get the lawyer. And as soon as he found out that I had used the money for a lawyer, because I told him that I had gotten a lawyer, he started to just do anything he could to make my life a living hell. He was going through my phone book. I had an old school phone book at the time with handwritten numbers in it and planner. And he was going through that and taking pictures of all the phone numbers. And he was, he started to call all of my friends, call and text over and over. Just, you have to tell her to stay. You have to tell her not to leave me. He was any male name that was in my phone book he was texting and calling them accusing them of having an affair with me he would cut off the credit cards he threw out food I would be eating he would take the kids and leave the house and not answer the phone he would turn the lights on and yell at me all night long. He would come home drunk and just start screaming about the divorce. There was one day he was upstairs and I was downstairs doing laundry and I heard him getting the kids together. So I was trying to get done what I was doing to get up the stairs to see where he was going to go. And he shut the door of the basement and the way that the house was set up, there was another door that would butt up against the basement and the the knobs would almost interlock. So you were locked in the basement. And he did that in such a way where I was locked down there and couldn't get out. And he came back probably two hours later. He, you know, opened the door and was just like, we're home. I remember just feeling like, how is this my life? And how did I get here? So confused and so emotionally contorted in my head if if that's even a word but to me 
that's how I felt. My mind was so scrambled thinking no one could act this horrible if there wasn't some truth in what he says that it must be my fault. So almost just racking my brain. Where did it go this wrong? And what did I do to make him this unhappy? And that's where a lot of that victim blaming and self negative, you know, talk and thoughts come into play, right? Like, if I was only nicer, if I just let him smoke weed and get high, if I didn't care about X, Y, Z, maybe he would have been nicer. Um, I felt very frantic during that time. I felt like I had these two small children that I were trying to protect. And I had a very angry, erratic, scary man that I was married to that I didn't know how to contain or control or even reason with. So while you were all still living with your ex under one roof, how was he treating your kids? He continuously exposed our children to really bad behavior. I remember one day I was cutting strawberries for the kids by the sink and he was, I think, cutting cucumbers. And he picked the knife up that he was cutting and just whizzed it across the kitchen into the sink next to me. And just walked away. And the kids were sitting there watching this. Lots of door slamming, lots of yelling. So my perspective now is he was abusing the children by proxy, right? Just by them being in that environment and him choosing to, to do that, those things to me. Um, but my mindset at that time was if I just remove myself or him from the situation, he can have his time with the kids and it won't be so bad. And then hopefully this can just simmer down. And that, you know, when I spoke to lawyers and when I finally got my lawyer and was talking with him about what was going on, that voice, here's the voice again, right? Well, when you're divorced, it'll calm down. When he's out of the house, it'll calm down. You know, when he's with the kids, it'll calm down. You know, they did. they don't truly understand the the coercive controlling abuser, right? They don't get that he's not going to calm down. So again, I made excuses and and hoped that all those things would, would be true. So the divorce proceedings and how it started was interesting. So I walked outside one day and he was in my car and he was taking pictures of the things in my car. And he started screaming and yelling at me outside of the house. And I don't know why that was the tipping point for me. I remember he slammed my car door so hard that it shook the car. And he said, if you were a guy, I would beat your face in. And I called the police. I remember speaking with my attorney and he said, you know, you have to get a restraining order. It's just escalating. And and other things had gone on similar in scope. So it was at that time that I got the restraining order and there was some reprieve from his behavior because he subsequently left the house and he, after that, never came back. So it was at this time when he really started with the DARVO, which means deny, attack, reverse victim offender, which really just is playing the victim. And he started with the threats of taking the kids away from me and getting custody. 
So he hired a very aggressive female attorney and he just started an onslaught of this false narrative and blaming me for all sorts of things that never even happened. So it was so confusing. And I spent so much energy and time and resources because this isn't expense now, right? We have attorneys, we have a restraining order, we can't communicate. Trying to defend myself against claims that were baseless, but started to gain teeth and traction because that's what unfortunately happens in, in divorces. So he, of course, accused me of everything under the sun, having an affair, being postpartum. He said I was a lesbian for a while. Um, He said I was mentally ill. So anything he could say or do to take the onus off of him and his bad behavior, he did. And he often fired first in terms of filing motions and appealing to the court for certain relief. And we started in this extremely litigious divorce. And the divorce took about a year and a half to finally settle. And during that time, we had a temporary custody agreement and it was 50-50. And that was difficult for me and the children. And the restraining order ended up getting overturned in repla- and replaced with civil restraints, which just essentially was a piece of paper that said he was supposed to be nice to me and treat me nice and not yell and, and email me nasties. But nice behavior didn't last very long. And, and we were in this cyclical ebb and flow of terrible behavior and police involvement and going back to court and then really quiet, ear, almost eerily quiet. The stonewalling would, would play out again in our post-divorce life. And we've been stuck in that cycle up until I'd say the last year when things again, got really bad. The co-parenting was difficult. I mean, it, it, I don't even want to say it was co-parenting. It was counter-parenting. Anything, if I said the sky is blue, he said it was purple. Um, he would frequently, you know, not return the kids to me, not let the kids talk to me. Parenting exchanges, there would be a lot of yelling. Um, his emails to me were always disparaging. And they would intensify in frequency if I, if he wasn't getting his way. So if he wasn't getting his way now, you know, he couldn't walk into the bedroom and turn the lights on and wake me up and scream at me. So he would just send me 15 emails a day. And then if I didn't answer his emails, he would start texting. So there was a lot of that going on. In addition to the maltreatment of me, and during this time, he was disparaging me all all throughout town. And he had successfully, in a sense, split our friend group in half. You know, everyone had to take a side. Because I remember just never feeling settled or safe. I always was worried still about what was going to set him off. And 
he had this almost like puppet master control over our lives because I had to make sure that if he was going to drop the kids off at three o'clock that there weren't any strange cars outside or there wasn't someone here that would maybe set him off or, you know, if I was going to be at work, my mom was scared to be here because she didn't want to get yelled at or she didn't want him to see that I wasn't here and then him not drop the kids off. There was a tremendous amount of police involvement. You know, he was always calling the cops. I would be left with no choice but to call the cop. So I think that's when I really stopped trying to justify or make him reasonable. Because I was still always, in spite of his treatment to me, I felt a responsibility to help him become reasonable or understand or work with him or bend or agree to what he wanted to try to get him to one day just be normal. And it never worked, obviously. So I started to draw the line in the sand and just started to try to educate myself. And that's when I remember I read Why Does He Do That by Lundy Bancroft and When Will I Be Free of You? So those two books were really eye-opening to me and really helped me understand the pathology, but they were behind his behavior and what I was up against. And they were also devastating because I think I was still holding on to a little bit of hope that he would change. You know, everyone throughout the divorce process was like, he'll tamper down after about a year. That's, this is what happens. And I started to really holistically understand that this was going to be a lifelong sentence for me. There was really no safeguards for me. I remember talking to a police officer once and him saying, what he does really isn't illegal. That's the problem. It's just annoying. And I remember leaving and crying and thinking, it's way more than just annoying. This man is ruining my life. And I was worried so much so for my kids and their future and what this was going to do to them. So after COVID, he started to escalate. His emails increased in volume exponentially. And then when he wasn't getting what he wanted, he just reverted to the texting. So he was texting me up to 70 and 80 times a day. And he was always, there was always this veiled threat in his communication that he was going to get custody and he was finally going to take the kids. Our daughter, who was getting older and, and more astute and understood what was going on more, um, started to voice her resistance to wanting to spend time with him and, and really was starting to refuse to go. And I knew talking to him about this was not going to be successful, given the history, but I tried and um, it was unsuccessful. So my daughter was becoming more and more resistant. She didn't want to go. And I was at a crossroads as a mother. And couldn't continue to gaslight her and refuse to do so. Because so much of my experience was external gaslighting, right? whether it was intentional or not. So I knew that in knowing what 
she was explaining to me was true. And I knew how he was, you know, lots of yelling, lots of stonewalling, then the silent treatment, lots of demands and getting angry for no reason, lots of, lots of disparaging me, lots of, you know, sitting them down and hours of trying to just indoctrinate into them that I'm bad and I've made this up and my family's bad and I hang out with bad people, all of that. So I couldn't bring myself to make excuses and say, he's just your dad and he's just mad and just go. And if you just go, it'll be fine. I couldn't do that anymore. And as the kids got older, it got harder and harder for me to hide and excuse his behavior. So my daughter stopped going and I made the decision, right, wrong or indifferent, that I wasn't going to force her to go because I couldn't force her to go. And he started with the, you're alienating them from me. You're making this all up. You're doing this. The kids are fine with me. You're a horrible person and I'm going to take the kids. So he went to court and, you know, laid out his whole sob story that he has. And I asked for the custody evaluation to be ordered and the custody evaluation was ordered. And the judge told me, you know, the kids need to go for parenting time while you do the evaluation. And my daughter was adamant that she was not going to go. And part of me as a mother and experiencing what I experienced, I really wanted to give her her voice and the power that she felt that she had the autonomy and the the ability to live free. Why should she have to live and suffer at the hands of her father? Even worse, you know, the things that he would say and, and do to, to them, you could really see the, the impact on her. She was starting to develop like OCD tendencies and, and very much anxiety, um, panic attacks. And at such an impressionable and important age for, for kids, especially girls, I couldn't cause her more trauma by forcing her to go. So unfortunately, a judge rules that your daughter has to go live with your ex for five of the seven days of the week for six months to make up for the months that she didn't go visit him. So what's the aftermath uh, in the family after this news? It was probably the most heartbreaking thing I had to do to tell my daughter. And I felt her heartbreak. It was different. I remembered her and I crying. And it was almost like she just knew she had to go. And I said to her, you know, because the judge actually did threaten that if I didn't send them, my custody would be taken away. And I just said, you just have to go and we just have to figure this out. And his emotional and psychological maltreatment, I'll say, because it covers a much broader scope of what he was doing intensified so much during this time he would just berate them about me and his attacks of me and what he shared with the kids knew no bounds you know the kids were coming back and asking me questions about things that they should never even as adults know went on 
So eventually you get called into court for an emergency custody hearing where your husband's parenting time got suspended. So walk us through this. The pivotal piece for the case was my daughter had started recording him when he would go into these rage-fueled episodes that would last sometimes for an hour or more. And to explain to someone he yells and he's scary is much different than hearing the level of anger that that is in his voice and is directed at the kids. That was very difficult and terrifying because it was in that moment that he knew he had been exposed and I knew he would never have the insight to be able to self-reflect and understand that the problem isn't her recording him it's him and his behavior so I didn't know which way he was going to go there was really only two options for him to fight it or to kind of slink away and I know a lot of Almost the Achilles heel for these abusers is shame and guilt and the truth, right? So now that the truth had, in a sense, been exposed and, you know, the community and everybody, my family, my friends, everyone that had been supporting me throughout this time was going to see the truth. It was definitely a a plausible option that he was going to slink away. Uh, Nonetheless, he isn't. He's taken on the stance and the role, if you will, because I always feel like he's playing a role of I'm changed. I see what I did and I'm in therapy and now I'm going to be the best dad I can be. And I want everyone to move on because I said I'm better. So it still is Jekyll and Hyde and just a nicer package. Six years 10 years, who, whosever perspective you're looking at it from. For me, it's been 19 years for my, for my kids, you know, their own ages. X amount of years just goes away in months time because I say I'm better and now everybody has to believe me. So there's still that overarching tone of I'm right, I'm superior, and I need to get my way or else. So in the aftermath of everything, how has it been uh, rebuilding your life? For me, emotionally, I feel like I fell apart a little bit in the sense where I had no choice but to be strong and do what's best for my kids and take the abuse and forge on and work and be successful and do all of these things. I had to wear all these hats. And I had almost no time to really grieve. It's almost like I can fall apart. And that's an uncomfortable feeling for me, for sure. Like I'm starting now to to see how bad the things that have gone on have affected me and really process the events much more. Um, It's interesting because throughout the process, I've been going to therapy and my therapist hasn't wanted me to really move forward with like an EMDR or brain spotting, which I'm really interested in, in learning more about and perhaps doing to help with the trauma. But my healing was almost on hold and pause because I really needed to be able to convey and talk about the impact 
and my feelings and emotions regarding the trauma and everything that's gone on. So I was in this standstill, if you will, which is still him controlling the narrative in my life, right? And now I feel much more free. And I and I'm ready to to really start healing more and I and I have tried to start distancing myself from, you know, learning about the pathology of these abusers and really be more introspective into healing because I feel like I have a PhD in narcissists and uh, abusive men, but I'm fearful now that I'm in the in the power position, if you will, and likely will be for for the foreseeable future, how that will exacerbate his anger. And throughout all of this, you know, we've basically taught him what isn't working. So I think now we're going to see a new set of behaviors that are equally as damaging. They just look different. So it's going to be more difficult for us to identify. And if you had any words of wisdom or advice for everyone listening, what would it be? That's such a powerful question because I feel like I've learned so much throughout my journey from other victim survivors. And I think you don't know how you're going to do it. You don't know how you're going to get through the next day. And it seems like it's a mountain that is just too high to climb that one day you see like a sliver of hope and the light at the end of the tunnel. And then that light just becomes bigger and bigger. And you get to a place where you'll, you won't be healed maybe, but you'll be at peace. And I think it's finding a support system, finding a hobby that brings you joy and being okay with your feelings and really validating yourself because we're in, we're invalidated by so many factors, including our abusers and just leaning into that. And like I say to my daughter, knowing your truth, your truth is your truth and no one can take that away from you. And I think a really important piece of advice I got from one of my close girlfriends when this all went on was he can say and do whatever he wants to you, but he can never take away the person that we all know that you are. So that person that you are, that you doubt, I'm talking to all of you, you know, victim survivors, that person is still there and other people see it. So despite everything they do to us, they can never take away from who we are and we're innately good people, which is why they target, target us. Well, Courtney, I really want to thank you for being a guest on our show today. You did a great job and I know you wanted to come on here and just help validate people and their experiences with your story and you did that today so I can't thank you enough uh, for being here thank you 
Thank you, Courtney, once again. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Courtney was today, please do go visit our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do read all of the instructions and send it in the format that we ask for. Also at our website, we have a support group, our very own support group at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says support group. When you click on that, you can go inside. It's our very own safe social network in there where we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We have forum boards for you to post on and to get the validation you need. And you can also validate other survivors on there as well. It's a great group of people in our support group. So if you need support, join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. At domesticshelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're going through. They have every website address, every phone number and email address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you're in. It is at domesticshelters.org. It is a wonderful organization, so please do visit them today. And also one more thing today, and we'll be promoing this a little bit more in the future, we're going to be creating a page on our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com for those survivors out there, for those people out there who are trying to get out of the situation that they are in, who are trying to save money, trying to earn money, and also for people who are out of situations, who are just trying to put a roof over their head and food on the table, we are creating a page on our site for your businesses that you have. You could have an Etsy store. You could have an eBay store. You could have services on Upwork. You could be a photographer, a copywriter, whatever business it is that you have and you're a survivor and you are listening to this right now, we just want to help you a little bit more. So we're going to be creating a page on our site that will eventually be promoing. And we just want everyone to, you know, Put everything that they have on there. We're going to try and get people to shop from you or use your services. So send us emails uh, at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com and put survivor business in your subject line so I know what it is for. And just keep on sending those in. We're going to start to uh, build the page very soon and get it out there and really start to promo it. And we need as many businesses as we can and many of your services as we can on there. So just please do send them in. And that is it for today's story, for today's episode. I really can't thank Courtney enough for being here and sharing her story. So for Courtney and myself, we hope you have a good night.